Welcome to Poetry and Conversation, and welcome to the Pratt Library. And I just want to mention that we have great poetry collections in this library, um, in the Humanities Department and the Periodicals Department, so please come back during our normal hours and browse. Um, I also wanted to mention some upcoming events. Um, on May 20th, we have another Poetry and Conversation, and it features Camila Aisha Moon and Michelle Chan Brown. And on April 12th, Saturday, we have City Lit at the library. Um, it's a day-long celebration of literature, and it will include some poetry. We also have this fun uh, series um, called Poems by Heart, which is when people come and just bring a poem they love, not by themselves, and share it with a group. And it's great fun. There are some flyers on the back table about these programs if if you're interested. Um, we also have an email list in the back table there, and if you get on that, you'll find out about all our programs. Um, but tonight is extra special. We're really honored to be hosting Brian Tier and Joshua Weiner. Um, they're each going to read for about 20 minutes, then we're going to have some Q&A, and then they will read some closing poems, and there will hopefully be a little bit of time to buy books and... Um, have a, something to eat or chat. Um, okay, so I'm going to begin by introducing Brian. A, formal a former National Endowment for the Arts Fellow, Brian Tier is the recipient of poetry fellowships from the McDowell Colony, the Headlands Center for the Arts, and the American Antiquarian Society. He is the author of four books, The Room Where I Was Born, Sightmap, the Lambda Award-winning Pleasure, and Companion Grasses, one of Slate's 10 best poetry books of 2013. An assistant professor at Temple University, he lives in Philadelphia where he makes books by hand for his micropress, Albion Books. When we are tired of winter and ready for spring, it feels right to welcome a poet who searches for root-deep renewal of our language, our perceptions, our world. There's a poem in Companion Grasses called The Very Air that begins with feeling tired, but we tire of spirit sight, striving always for elsewhere, as we are so much among phenomena. Our yearning to be elsewhere seems to be a wish to push past abstraction to encounter our surroundings afresh. In the very air, we do it by visiting grasses, flowers, trees, rocks, to recite the names of them all, becoming a kind of heaven, a reminder of how, throughout the book, Tear brings to life gorgeous landscape details. His language shows a hunger to let nature speak for itself, but nature can't speak for itself in poetry. Instead, through surprising musical breakdowns, gaps, and juxtapositions in language, Tyr makes us feel the constructedness of our perceptions, of how, as he puts it, our looking is what we see, its tension, its signature. The new vision the poems achieve a made and remade marriage of viewer and world is something the very air describes as a starry charity. Doesn't it bract, doesn't it seeple and send seed splitting sheath into soil? Doesn't our flesh, the very fossils, tremble bedrock? To borrow words from poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, there lives the dearest freshness deep down things. 
We're so lucky to have Brian Tier here tonight to help us enjoy that freshness. Please help me to welcome Brian Tier. Thank you. That was a really beautiful intro. Thank you. Thank you all for being here on a stormy, weird night. And um, thank you for having me at the library, and thank you for reading with me. It's such an honor to read with an awesome poet. I'm going to read from three books in chronological order, because I've never read in Baltimore before, and I feel like I don't really know you. You don't really know me. So I'm going to begin with a book called Pleasure. Uh, Three poems from that book. It is a book-length elegy for my partner who passed away of AIDS in 1999. Um, And these three poems kind of give you a sense of the time in which uh, the dead one has become dead. You're no longer as attached to the person who's no longer there, and yet giving up that attachment is very difficult. So these three poems kind of trace that trajectory. Californian. It began like this, a radio, midday heat, remember a shriek on the highway, and in the yard, Stellar's jays chafing over haggle, nag their claims, a lyric tableau, pretty for the eye, how sun for months stuck aureoles of chrome around everything, even your poems, omens, so no other disaster would happen. But that there was dust, it had not been so before in June, grass dead at edges where a dirt spread had begun, feral cats interring piss into nasturtiums. His death had become the dropped side of a song, melody undone by damage, exactly the feel of teeth entering an apple's bruise. The trellis kept the jasmine wrapped as it collapsed in its own odor. So ardor also trained the spine of your weeping into a mind. Confluence of fumes in confusion. Over sills, jams, silt, scent, collusion, thistle, burr, mouse, turds, urine's lingering funk in rooms where to write was a widow alone with the last broom she'd bought. Heat with its missing finger and nine filed nails tuned all afternoon its blue note. Horizon, a slack string tautening against asphalt, whose sound was drought. Marsh departed before August began. Blackouts rolled house to house. How perfect the fraud and emergencies. So there were two songs sung in counterpoint to Jay's argument about belonging to a place, remember, Pray and prayer, one struck the other beneath the lyric image, playing flint to tinder, until on the radio, eastern hills caught fire. Extremis, excelsis, that is how summer 
All veils and exhalations courted the hills. How already the church was burning when your soul went out to meet him, to marry his new weather. I should say, he died, and a year later I moved to California, and California was the landscape in which I began to write about him. Um, So the landscape was, I'd never lived in the West, and it did things like catch on fire, shake, um, did all these things that no landscape I had encountered had ever done. Um, And winter was not winter. So this is a winter poem, but it's not like a winter here. Californian, you want to go back where grief was perfect weather. A long time, rain trussed the perspectives with rope and silver. In the grove, in the eucalyptus, shadow bound in shapeless sheaves, a sfumato of indigo and graphite, leaving the air beneath the leaves a stain as of mineral and berries, a smear of menthol. No birds ever, where it seems so now, in the forest, no sound, but a soft mathematics in the branches, rain adding rain to rain, no growth. Each tree's dermis, dark-blown glass and a breath kept inside, and fastened with twists of thin wire to the branches, the leaves' useless, ruined currency, it glisters a mint of flattened nickels. It seems you have come back, but the money of your elegies is no good here. Listen, it isn't your pennies any longer. Hold his eyes closed. Thank you. And the last from this book, Californian. The sea begins in regards to your questions, white caps in late high sun, acetylene from shore to where horizon, deft, ends, troughs in brighter gesture, severance edged with foam. Where, if the world is flesh, to place the limit between your body and the world? You hate the word, God. A beach's bleach, season, a pause between winter and elsewhere. In the firmament's hiatus, gulls, cries, drive toward promontories, the tide on granite, spindrift, rifted, foam on dark rock, stark white sweat on a horse's flank. Call it muscle or salt, still sea rides land like that, though God is no mind, water crawling into shell, nor shadow, fast toward shore over water, in regards to the matter, if it please you, ask after the rain. Muscles gulls brought to drop on rock split, shrug off their hinge interiors, tide goads stone as waves retreat beneath, to sigh, as if matter were bitter, several skins through, or right, if you like. A lyric has no mind. It wouldn't barter for certainty. Arabesque, error, metaphor is doubt of a kind, of two minds, of being, asking after one who has died, 
in the lighthouse, shunting its white eye in fog. Its voice, an order of inquiry, of no color or echo. As for the rain, gulls drive inland to drop on rock. It shivers on granite, spreads silver, interior spilled. As for your mind, years now, it seems, out at sea, Nulls spun from fog, it's zero, visibility to the core, shore, an answer precisely beyond the limit, a vision. It begins in regards, it hears the white voice trolling its borders. And immediately after I wrote that poem, I wrote this next one, which was... Um, the first one in which Jared did not, he was not in it anymore. I was on to something else. Um, and this book, which is called Sightmap, kind of began my engagement with 19th century American literature and philosophy and thinking. Um, what you need to know about this poem is that it's Pennsylvania. It's not California, because you'll wonder, why is it snowing? Um though it does snow in parts of California. And that, that it's in three sections, and the titles of each section are a fragment of one sentence of Emerson's journals. So the sentence as a whole, I'll read it now so you can kind of track it, is, when we have lost our God of tradition and ceased from our God of rhetoric, then may God fire with presence. Emerson Susquehanna. One, when we have lost our God of tradition. Not thaw brought to the river. Thought, long winter, a surface that holds no current or image. And there's language laid down like that. Mind locked in a long walk through the chill of a single word. And there's cattails fraught where water's not any longer. And God's appall called down to mind the meaning given a life. Once thought, the word makes mind too small, like Bible-colored Sundays, all study and chalk and exotic, potted palms dotting a holy land, entirely crayon, and the lavender mimeographs leave on the hands. The word God has always been my mother's, fingers separating my sister's hair, Three strands gathered in a braid so tight, white at the parted dark, roots stood out. Word, a migraine in its wake. Word, endured alone in a room. Shades drawn over pain. Words, a mind's light ingrown, caught, not snarled upon itself. Sub-zero, months from thaw, we walk. O trees, trouble. Tremble at the roots of being underneath, under law, the order of things so deeply of violence and unnumbered like the snow. Two, and ceased from our God of rhetoric. But I don't know their names. Rust worked under each wing like sweat lunettes. 
synthetic, silk crest stitched to a white head, small gears completely grease, preening ash, mechanical sheen of oil, charcoal. Only this description eats and screams, squanders territory. What use is it to see? Faith, the world is knowable. There are ways to understand, and none is living or lyric, limp or stutter. If I send a letter, the sudden utter other means than speech, when I don't know to love language other than to run a larceny, all machine and god-likeness, gear and hinge, pocket watch, tie pin, money clip and wing tip, my father's imposter I am then, my words a mere guess at what isn't. It isn't mastery I'm after. It's certain other terms than my own I wait for. For instance, birds without names fly anyway, ceaselessly, up the ladder, cast from visible to invisible. Is it, it only seems there's a way to know the way? Three, then may God fire with presence, and you can never catch it, nor make it still. And so it is like thought in this, or weather, that you might live within it or by its constraints, but never touch it. And there is the sorrow, it will never know you, though you will feel all winter the shiver of how it never hesitates in touching you. Or said another way, it snowed all day and into the night. The view developed slowly like a photograph in a bath of chemicals. What began as white grew whiter by virtue of contrast until it seemed overexposed. So little shadow was left, like a sentence revised too often. What happens is the mind travels outward because it wants to be the soul it is heard tell of. Nervous work like a bird, sky and power line, garbage can, underbrush, it goes to them. It intends itself toward oily black seeds, toward reflections in ice and in glass, and it goes to the wind and is shut out, which is no one's home. Ever leave-taking, action is its only description. Each shadow on the lamplit street seeming to rush, molting out of itself, each upward to snow, multitude of hurry, confusion, mid-air to meet the idea that made it. Thank you. Not doing so bad in Baltimore after all. You guys have this reputation for being so tough. All right. Um, in the last poem, I'll re- I'm just going to read one more um, ca- called Star Thistle. This one, um, again, takes place in California. And um, it is also an elegy, but not for my partner. Um, And Whitman shows up. I don't think I'll say anything. I don't think I need to say anything else. Well... I will just say I felt one of the 
things that happened to me in California was falling in love with the the various bioregions in which I live there and loving those places very deeply. And this third section of the book really circles around a particular um, mountain in Napa Valley, above Napa Valley, and comes back repeatedly to a meadow that I just fell in love with for no reason that I can think of except that I fell in love with it. Um, So I think I talk about the field I love in this over and over again, but had you read the whole book, you would have met this field in other poems. Star Thistle. He died in lamplight. That night brought out against fog its grid of gambits. Each street a perfect winter dissembled. Pure effect after that. Anything outside? All scumble. Marine layer a low hover that suffered dwelling to disappear into weather. Facade a slow fade into gradient. His death felt like that. To unlock and open the front door onto a lost element, looking for purchase, to find a vanishing inside a home where once there'd been rooms, and no humus into which to inter his memory, no image. From 50 miles away, a thousand feet below the field I love, I tried to remember how spring undoes the year like a knot how winter haze, flat, thin cover, turns gold, gray beneath rain, keeps close to ground the germinal heat, how grasses thread up through the remainder of what sowed them and help break it down. All spring following his death, I turned and thought to pale green stems infiltrating the annual weave of leavings, each seed a knot in the energy net flung out over the field so the caught space can blossom. June 4th, I board the ferry in time to see spring end on Atlas Peak, grasses turning again to seed, each stem an eidolon of itself, brittle inflorescences shattering in my wake. I leave the cabin each afternoon for the field's edge to sit and watch what I can't see work the surface. Wind which I've never cared for in particular, cares only for particulars. This rachis, this spikelet, these lodicules, nothing too miniature to be seized by a shaking, neither grief nor fear, and far more complete. Days I close my eyes, I hear the smallest ocean's smallest surf break beneath my feet, a pile of gold seeds that rattles the dust. After 14 years of living with HIV and the side effects of protease inhibitors, after persistent misdiagnosed abdominal pain turned out to be colon cancer that spread to his liver, after the removal of the tumor and the majority of his colon, after chemotherapies, nausea, and neuropathy, after a perforated abdomen led to a heart attack, following three surgeries and a seizure after the second surgery, after severe peritonitis and a very bad case of blood poisoning that almost killed him, Reginald died. His final letter to me, ending as always, Take good care, my friend. A gesture 
I leave the field to hike up the trail thick with wildflowers. Less vetch this year, but plenty of mariposa lilies, all the flowers bountiful, until halfway to the ridge, I enter another field of a liminal tint, blue-green, stems covered in pale hair, thousands still tender, but others older, each branch ending in a bright ball of spikes, soon to bloom. Yellow star thistle, non-native invasive, particularly noxious to grazing animals. Each year the thistle spreads farther down trail. Each year each plant bears one to a thousand seed heads, each seed head holding as many as 80 seeds, the life of one plant easily leaving 100 behind. Knowing nothing I do will help. I pull up a hundred young plants each time I pass the first field of them. I grip each stem low to ensure I get the long, ingenious taproot that even during drought reaches water, and my forearms blister where they're pricked by lateral spines. It might be bad morning to want the thistle gone, but I go on hating it. It seems an uncanny design ensures its slow destruction of an ecosystem. It chokes out healthy grassland flora, even kills grazing animals that might control its spread. Uncanny, it survives drought and thrives off wildfire, both. Just a pretty plant, holistic in its grip of a habitat. The thistle is not metaphor and extends into the future as far as I can see, easily filling the field I love. At its edge I stand, my skin a stipple of blisters. Something startles me where I thought I was safest, Whitman says. Now I am terrified at the earth. It is that calm and patient as it undoes itself, undoing that toughens to give way relentlessly to nothing but its own propagation. The earth undoes itself as each life undoes itself, and to what end is what terrifies me after the hike. I try with salve to soothe the blisters that deepen and weep weird, clear fluid. The day before Reginald died, we spoke on the phone, but morphine filled his speech So completely, it was terrible to listen to him, disappearing, even as he said, I love you, and I echoed him, the last thing I could bear before I had to say goodbye, filled with the certainty I'd failed to witness the death of a friend I'd loved. Good morning, accepts transience, sure. It makes sense in the field I love, where I see next year already on the stem. Sun draws inflorescences taut, and wind separates what's left into seed and chaff. But I was raised to believe in a personal God attending a death whose final horizon is eternity, an ideal persistent as the star thistle seeds carried to California by contaminated feed in the 1850s, whose progeny covers 12 to 15 million acres currently. What chemistry, as Whitman would say, it is that calm and patient. And though the thistle isn't metaphor, I find myself kneeling 
weeding the lowest field again, and I become everything about root giving up ground, the groan it grudges as it eases up, out, the subtle scent of the flower that when eaten by horses causes brain lesions, and my coastal mouth ulcers that lead to eventual death by starvation and dehydration, and when eaten by bees makes exceptional honey, heavily fragrant and strangely dark, almost gray. Two weeks before we spoke, Reginald in the hospital wrote his last poem, God with us, ending it, How I want to believe, a pearl, an irritant. It's one thing to want to believe, to live by building a mind on the fault between faith and doubt. It's another to believe the longing for belief and attack, a distrust of immersion in the material given us as habit and habitat. No possible rush of friendship for stones, grasses, and humus, as if the human were over and the wild deer in us were released at last, at dusk to disappear into the stand of manzanita far across the field I love. If we die to become nothing but matter so that being itself might continue, grounded by ground itself, such a sweet thing out of such corruptions, who wouldn't wish to linger in the material world that won't spare me or let me hold a living hand to him. All spring, all return, to bring grief to the field, always one root I can't pull out entire. As above, so below, from star down to thistle, it's all the same. Still firm in the ground, today it breaks in my hand. Bad morning that this summer flowers, the life only destruction makes possible. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brian Tier, for your wonderful poetry. Um, Joshua Weiner will read next, and I have a short introduction here. Uh, Joshua Weiner has written three books of poetry, The World's Room, 2001, From the Book of Giants, 2008, and The Figure of a Man Being Swallowed by a Fish, 2013, all published by the University of Chicago Press. His many publications include a book about the poet Tom Gunn, with whom he studied at the University of California, Berkeley. Joshua Weiner has received numerous awards, including the Rome Prize, the Whiting Writers Award, and a 2014 Guggenheim Fellowship. He teaches at the University of Maryland in the MFA program. Recent courses include Poetry Workshops and Why Poetry Matters. In Joshua Weiner's newest collection, The Figure of a Man Being Swallowed by a Fish, the poet has crafted poems that bring together the personal, abstract, political, and historical in a masterful way. The restraint and care in the making allow a deeper emotion to come through, as with the ending of Florida, Schoolboy on Break. In so many poems, the line breaks seem almost contrapuntal, as in the poem Cyclops, 
My love is now my love, object broken jar, adding levels of meaning. The attention to sound is delightful throughout the poems, as you will hear. In Rock Creek, too, you can feel the variations of the river. Joshua Weiner's changing language also takes us to different times, from the elegant Shakespearean The Winter's Tale through the plain voice of Walt Whitman in Rock Creek, too. Often in the motion of the poem, a well-timed word will surprise us with a moment of eternity, as in the closing material of Rock Creek, Rock Creek 2, which um, I hope you will be able to hear. Please welcome Joshua Weiner. Uh, thank you. That's uh, always a um, uh, really thoughtful, insightful introduction. Thank you. Those, those things aren't easy. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be reading with Brian Tier. Brian and I actually met... Uh, uh, in California, um, on the occasion of my beginning to um, uh, edit a book of essays about the poet Tom Gunn. And I was looking for um, a younger poet uh, who was uh, from the Bay Area who um, could explain to me uh, something about Tom Gunn's, uh, the kind of ambivalent um, uh, reception Tom Gunn had in this city that he um, made his home for 35 years. And when I met Brian and got to talk with him uh, for just a short while, I knew that I um, had met the guy who could do it. And uh, he ended up writing really one of my very favorite essays in that book, a brilliant essay that uh, broke new ground in thinking about uh, Gunn and his relationship with the great poet Robert Duncan. Uh, an, another poet who's meant a lot to both uh, Brian and myself. His poems, um, Brian's, are uh, so musical and meticulous and full of such propulsion. It's such a pleasure to, to hear you read from, uh, from, from the um, previous work and, and the new stuff, too. I'm going to open with um, the first part of this longish poem, uh, Rock Creek, that was alluded to in the introduction. It's a, it's a little ironic to be reading from a longish poem in, in the Poe room. Uh, Poe didn't really believe in long poems, but, um, uh, but, but here we'll go. Um, we hope not to turn him in his grave. Uh, the, the, a lot of you know uh, Rock Creek is a tributary that runs... Um, uh, through the district, it starts in Maryland, uh, empties into the Potomac, and, and goes out to, to the Chesapeake. And um, in this poem about the creek, the creek is a site for different kinds of history, uh, natural history, um, kind of prehistory, ancient history, uh, prehistoric history, I mean, um, uh, personal history, and uh, secret histories. And in it you hear um, what you could call my point of view or my consciousness blending and fusing with Walt Whitman's. Uh, I love this phrase of Ginsburg about Whitman in Supermarket in California. He calls Whitman a uh, lonely old courage teacher. Uh, I think uh, he's, he has been one for, for both of us. Rock Creek. cutting away through stone to see what's there, not how things appear, earth blood, without style, never at rest, 
What settles in it, red on the surface, ripples, meandering forward, eddying back. Swirling, turbid, intricate plates of water from the bottom rising, turning upside down, striking bank before returning to stream center. Original current, indifferent to the play of light, crystalline ideal forms a static lie. Rather, as Leonardo saw, a motion resembling hair. One must take five days to place water in a picture. While a splash erupts into corona, its rim breaking into spills of droplets, like the secret structure of rainfall, scalloped edges of water joining water in common coil, spawning vortices, streamlines detaching as they hit fluorescent storm-swept traffic cones, glowing half-submerged, shedding eddies, rushing faster by tightening gorge, squeezed self-amplifying transmission, as one flow drives another motion, altering force driving that motion, like Coltrane, stretching tight vibrato phrases, incremental shifts of pitch and tone, the place it's going, unknown, excited, viscous harmonies, continuously born, devoured, cascades of smaller scales, circulating airstreams, the unregarded river of our life, an overflow of meanings with no speech, undirected as prisoners of Guantanamo, flooding cells in protest, each drinking 18 bottles of water in an hour. And the breath preaches one man, having heard it from his father. The breath moved upon the face of the waters. While another speaks, ex-con activist, wry observer at the crossroads, how the system is hustling backwards. That uh, final quote that the overture ends with is by um, uh, Petey Green, uh, whose middle name uh, I was tickled to discover was Ralph Waldo. Really? Yep. It's a fact. So um, the poem continues and and picks up on um, the consciousness of Whitman and kind of fuses with it. Uh, and uh, sounds like this. Oak, tulip, poplar, beech and laurel, holly, dogwood on the hills, sycamore, red maple, wet, tolerant, all along the floodplain, through steep ravines, gentle sloping hills, grassy meadows, and the stretch of rapids south of Military Road, the secession war, captured in a street sign, now as frenzied commuter route, where 20,000 years ago, nomads sharpened fluted points for caribou, elk, moose, black bear, mastodon, and mammoth, the spring-fed tributaries feeding into open stream our sewer lines underground. Silt and sand choke off the creek mouth at Whitehurst Freeway, where ships ran up to P Street from, from Potomac's crowd of masts. In gristmills, Lions, deacons, parrot, pierce, Columbian, all ran out of time to grind. And Benjamin Stoddart, milliner, first secretary of the Navy, who bought up land to create the capital, now names the kitty soccer team, an elementary school, in limbo, neither remembered 
nor forgotten. If Rock Creek is a passage, what will I find there in its leaves and pages legible by moonlight, having passed by the White House of future poems, its sentries at gates, silent, pacing in blue overcoats, stopping you not at all, but eyeing you with sharp eyes whichever way you move, whichever way you move, with me now from hospital to hospice of the creek, the pallid face of wounded lights your way, and in the air the moisture on the lip of the Sekesh boy, his fine, large frame, patient, mute survivor of the butcher's shambles, his arm tossed on the departing amputation cart. Little he knew, poor, death-stricken boy, the heart of the stranger that hovered near, talked to him a little, but not much, moved closer, held his hand, and now moves in creek shadows, searching, fluid and firm. What will I find there then, if Rock Creek is a passage, the crown of haze around the moon, like stardust, inked around the gunner's nipple, something veiled, abstracted, dark columns moving through the night, and I stand, unobserved in the darkness, and watch them long, my own longing charged with the intimacies of the ward. And when I join the soldiers along the creek or defending the capital behind earthworks, acres of felled trees, hewn branch barriers with sharpened points, they invite me to declaim poetical pieces, read the Bible, and we play an amusing game called the Game of 20 Questions. You can hear in the um, poem how it moves back and forth in time to uh, the Rock Creek of the Civil War um, that was uh, being camped in by uh, Union troops who were uh, stationed to defend uh, the capital from uh, the Confederate Army, um, and then forward in time as well. Um, And here we come all the way forward uh, into uh, the present. So, it is living water exploiting its own nature. To be preserved in the seed that never falls nor changes. A dream. Whereas from the surface of silence, under the pressure of river wonder that moves through the green heights, the old woman in the parking lot of Giant grabbed me by the arm on my way to the car. Four bags of ice in hand for the school football team. A warm September Saturday, the bags begin to drip. What does she want? She can't open the back hatch of her van, the electronic key. It's not hers. It's borrowed. She's just been evicted. Her muddy brown eyes are enormous. I can see the shadowy mounds of domestic debris in the beat-up oatmeal-colored van. Does she need to buy something? Some food? No. She's just dropping off her recycling. She has to drop off her recycling. How do you open the back? The ice is dripping. The cubes are fusing in their melting. Her fragility and panic gripping me. I lay the bags down on the warm tarmac and show her how the key works. She takes the key and tries to open the door. She can't do it. 
I show her again how the key works. You, you just press it there, hold it. The hatch opens and I lift it up. She'll never be able to reach that high to close it herself. She takes the key and practices opening the doors and locking them while I grab some empty bottles to carry to the bins. Not those, she yells. Those stay. Okay. Which, these? No, not those. Okay. These? No, 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 no. I just want to finish to help her and go. Where is she driving to? She stares at me. From the plastic bags, a stream of ice melt is running along the contours and cracks of the blacktop, picking up grains of dust and carrying them away. So, Walt Whitman spent a lot of time in D.C. having come down from New York uh, to search for his wounded brother and nurse him. And after his brother returned to his uh, unit, Whitman stayed and was um, a kind of angel nurse to the young soldiers of both the North and the South. Spent many, many hours in D.C. tending to them. And in this section, um, Walt Whitman uh, travels through time uh, to us and um, uh, visits the soldiers at Walter Reed. If Rock Creek is a passage, what will I find there? young men obeying the events and occasions about them, unaware of their own nature, the sick, poor wrecks and phantoms coming along 7th Street, passing slowly up from the steamboat wart with loads, and amid the woods, mud huts and mule teams, heaps of forage, hay, horse carcass, an old flag shot through with fragments, silk-stained, fringed as with the sword, and nearby, the soldiers sleeping, who e'er can write the story. Quite often they arrive at the rate of a thousand a day, and every day in the district papers they print the hospital directories. Often at Walter Reed I go distributing myself in the contents of my pockets, good jelly, spiced fruits, pickle, tobacco, undershirts, drawers, stockings, writing paper, envelopes, pencils, licorice, raspberry vinegar, pipe, whorehound candy, a comb, a toothpick. Lots of them have grown to expect as I leave at night that we should kiss each other, sometimes quite a number. I know what is in their hearts, always waiting, Though they may be unconscious of it themselves, the soldiers know how to love, too, when once they have the right person and the right love offered them. You see how I'm running away into the clouds? Exiting, I pass the old finishing school for young ladies, now the Forest Glen, 
dead pastoral with its Japanese pagoda and Dutch windmill stirring the evening air, the main PX store, the Robin Hood deli, where I pick up some vagabond literature, the center's hero handbook lost under piles of the Rock Creek Free Press tabloid. Does the United States maintain a plan for the continuity of government through suspension of the Constitution? Did the CIA kill Jimi Hendrix? And what about the stagnant pools of money the states keep from the national economy? Reassure your child that the family member injured is still the same person, even though he or she may look different. Use accurate language when describing the family member's injury. If you say the loved one lost a limb, the child may think it was simply misplaced. Teach your child the vocabulary of the injury. Knowing words such as prosthesis, rehabilitation, and physical therapy can take out the mystery and help your child feel more in control. Give your child something to bring. Common reactions include crying, clinging, searching, regression to earlier behaviors, repetitive play or talk, fighting, tantrums, outbursts, withdrawal, regression to earlier behaviors, sleep difficulty, acting as if the person is not injured, increased fear, anger, bullying, denial, self-blame, fluctuating moods, fear of separation or being alone, headaches, stomach aches, difficulty concentrating at school, while powerless to protect military children from difficult life experiences, there are ways we can work together to make transformations as positive as possible. Are you experienced? Have you ever been experienced? Many injured experience nightmares, unwanted thoughts, impatience, flashbacks, irritability, avoidance, numbness, guilt, shame, grief, depression, lack of trust, negative self-image, and view of the world, and increased arousal is also a common response. Remember, go slowly. Don't try to make up for lost time. I'm going to end with the title poem to this book, The Figure of a Man Being Swallowed by a Fish. The title belongs to an object in the permanent collection at the Baltimore Museum of Art. Um, It's a a small statue, like this big, uh, and uh, it's of a, a fish standing on its tail, and out of its mouth rises the torso of a man. Uh, nobody knows who made it, where it was made, when it was made. Um, but someone called it the figure of a man being swallowed by a fish. And the more I looked at it, the less convinced I was that it was a, the figure of a man being swallowed by a fish. It could be, a, after all, uh, the figure of a man being spit up by a fish.
And the more I looked at it, the less sure I was. The figure of a man being swallowed by a fish is not a man being swallowed by a fish. With eyes like eight-point throwing stars, it's a man being swallowed by a war, a man being taken into the mouth of a woman or being swallowed by his work. It's a man traveling far inside a book, a man being swallowed up in smoke. He swallows the smoke that blends around him like a thought. It's a man being swallowed by a sound. He shapes it so he lives inside a song of a man being swallowed by his kin, his skin, a man being swallowed by the state, Leviathan in 1948. It's a man being swallowed by another man, literally eaten as a pathway to God. It's a man being swallowed by a sight he cannot reach, cannot touch, cannot trace. It's a man who won't recognize the face, who can't fit the parts or find the place. It's a man in triumph over death who laughs and beats the dust from his clothes, a man tasting dust inside the laugh. It's a man who listens to the clock, a man with nothing to exchange, a rude man, his twin he leaves behind. It's a man who wants to be a bride, a man being swallowed by his fault with something old to show and new to hide. It's a man who tries to haul the rope, a man who's stooping can't provide, a man who can't forget his name. It's a man who doesn't know his worth. It's a man being swallowed by his wrath, his youth, yield, luck, the law, his fear, the fog, his fame. It's a man being swallowed by a coat, his father's coat. He smells of the fit, a man being swallowed by his vows. It's a man softly squeezing for the vein. He finds it. He's minding the road. It's a man being swallowed by a room in which he finds a man being swallowed by a fish. It's a man who thinks, what's in a man who exits into night at closing time? The figure of a man being swallowed by a fish. Thank you. Um, so at this point, at this point, I'd like to invite the um, poets, if you don't mind, to come up to the table. And we're going to do just a little bit of Q and A, and before we finish. Um, oh, and I should say that. Um, we're podcasting this event. That means we're recording it um, using the mics. So if you have a question, I'm going to bring you the mic so we can also record your question. And we already have Thank you very much. First of all, good evening. A very good uh, poetry reading from both of you. You both mentioned you have written three new books. I'm thinking along the span of about 10 or 20 years from now with the new advanced technology, I'm concerned where we ever had the printed word made available readily as we now have. Because, for instance, when you take your app phone, smartphone, or any other kind of phone, you have to, once in a while, you have to charge it in. When you take the internet, whether it's a laptop at all, you have to plug it in. Don't plug in books. So do you know by uh, 10 or 20 years where we still have the printed word with all the beautiful pictures and illustrations? It does add meaning to poetry. I mean, it's okay reading if, you, if your eyes are okay um, uh, for some of us on a screen, but it doesn't have the same effect. What do you all say? Did, did, did you bring your crystal ball? Uh, <laughs> um, well, I love the point you made about um, books not uh, needing um, uh, auxiliary power. 
right? All the power's got to come here. Um, and uh, um, and we go a step further and, and say that um, uh, the more we commit poems to memory that we love, uh, the less we even need uh, books. And um, one of the great kind of features of poetry technology is that um, it's a memory technology. Um, and um, so, that, so, so that's one, one thing um, to remind ourselves of. But um, I'm thinking about the fact that Brian um, uh, has this wonderful uh, letterpress, Albion Books, and makes incredibly beautiful books by hand that have great work, uh, works of poetry in them. And one of the things that um, it's occurred to me in the last couple of years is um, uh, how technology doesn't actually replace, how new technology doesn't replace old technology, but technologies tend to coexist side by side um, to adopt different roles in the culture depending on what's, what's happening in the culture. And one of the things that we're, we see happening in poetry publication is... Um, that there is a, a real feeling of value in the physical object of the book. And, and it's not a retrograde interest. It's actually part of a kind of avant-garde interest in the book. Um, this is happening uh, kind of uh, parallel to what's going on in um, audio recording, too. Um, analog recordings now are quite cherished alongside of digital recordings. Uh, it's a very, it's very confusing, but um, but the fact that um, uh, the fact that technologies don't eclipse each other in some kind of like march of history, I think, is a really positive thing. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think, yeah, I would agree with every. I mean, to me, it's complicated because, on the one hand, I trust people. Like, I trust humans to have their varied interests and keep going with, like, oh, I, I want to read the object. Or I know a lot of my friends now sort of read different differently in different places. So they have, like, their Kindle or whatever it is that they travel with because they don't, they they don't want to carry seven books, which is still what I do. Um, but then at home, they'll, like, read their normal book you know, or the real book, in my estimation. Um, or, like, when they're teaching, they'll read the real... You know, like, that different context events, different kinds of reading practices and different materials. Um, and I believe that, and I know that people do that, but I'm really... I get very nervous about industry and industry's insistence on trying to grow and spread and sort of develop and make people dependent or think that people make, that they're dependent on certain modes of reading or certain kinds of technologies that we're really not. We have a lot of options. And I do think of history as, or contemporaneity as a series of like folds. History folds on itself. So people are persisting in totally analog technologies that are not, progressive that are totally retrograde that don't you know like letterpress printing is like Gutenberg <laughs> it's really old um, and yet some of those I like in the in my press like I do that for the covers and sometimes for broadsides but then I digitally set the interior because I don't have enough studio space or type to actually letterpress an entire book so 
for me, like the objects that I make are a perfect example of what you're saying. Um, and the objects a lot of people make. That said, again, I get, I get, I do get nervous about the larger industries and technologies. But I trust people to keep doing their weird. You know, I read this way, I read this here, I do this, and you know, we all choose different ways to navigate what we're offered. I think this will be a good segue. Um, I guess this question is for Brian, but uh, as somebody who actually makes the physical object, I'm wondering if that's affected. It's great that we've been talking about Whitman so much and his um, exhaustive line, line length. And I'm wondering if you making the physical object has made you approach how you treat line length any differently, knowing... Um, some of the gory details as to what it, what goes into actually creating yeah. a physical thing. I'm thinking of you know how terrifying C.K. Williams would have been to somebody making. Well, I know he had problems with just put it, getting it on the shelf. Getting the, yeah. Well, I do. You know, for me, it's often the question of who will I publish with and where will I publish because my poems you can't see, them, but a lot of them use the entire page are very sculptural or projective, and not everyone's, A, interested in that. And then also not all typesetters even know how to work with it. Like, there are a lot of poetry typesetters are just used to everything being left justified, and you can kind of dump it in. And so when it's super wacky, they're like, what? <laughs> Luckily, um, you know, I've chosen presses that would either adjust the trim size of the book. Um, Omnidon couldn't which is why the type is very small. As I didn't notice, but as my older friends pointed out, <laughs> um, they were like, we can't read this, um, but we'll try just for you. Um, but I've largely, a lot, even the journals that I publish in, sometimes they're digital because digital has less constraints behind page size. Um, or sometimes I publish in large format journals because that's just easier. But... Um, to go back to your actual question, um, for a long time it didn't really change anything, but the book that I'm working on now, um, I feel like is more, it's in conversation with visual art, and it is much more treating the poem as a plastic, as a plastic art, as, a, as an object. Um, that can be torn apart or shredded or presented in different ways um, and still maintain a kind of lyricism and a voice. But I don't think I would have done that if I hadn't actually set by hand and sort of been able to envision a lot of them. Even I made an early s series of them as a chapbook that I actually hand-set each page because I was able to really play with the letting and the kerning and the ways the lines touched each other. And I was very, because it's all about embodiment and illness. And so I was really interested in how the body of the poem might reflect that kind of fragility um, and how typesetting might enable that to happen. And not in a decorative way, because I think we're taught very often to think of any experiment on the page as more decorative than really meaningful. Like, oh, Easter wings, yeah, cute, uh-huh. You know, but nobody really gives a shit that they're wings. <laughs> um, or think that it, you know, it's just pictorial. You know, it doesn't really do much. And so 
Um, that's people's suspicion or, you know, same with Cummings. So I was interested in trying to create, use typography to, to shift that and make typography actually a kind of, a gesture of embodiment of the poem being embodied on the page in a particular way. Um, and that reflecting a particular kind of state of the poet's body. I don't know if it works, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, you're, what you both told us about the West Coast just makes me curious. Did either one of you, um, are you acquainted with Richard Grossinger or his writing? Um, another admirer of Robert Duncan, actually. Uh, A little bit. Yeah, sure. I think anybody who spends much time reading Duncan and reading what was going on in the in San Francisco in the um, late 40s, you know, would, but I don't, I'm, I don't know a, a whole lot. Thank you. First, I wanted to thank you both. Uh, wonderful reading. And uh, as a geographer, I've been listening very carefully to these cartographies. And uh, I was very curious if, if you could, if both of you, uh, both of your poems are so conspicuously geographical. And um, I was wondering if you could speak about these geographies. And uh, you, both of you talk about sites and place. And uh, if you could speak about the importance of geography in your poems, is it by design? Um, and a little bit more about that. Um, well, I, uh, the kind of... Uh, what I would say honestly is that um, uh, I started thinking about... Uh, Washington, D.C. as a site differently after I spent a year uh, living in Rome. Uh, and um, uh, you know, walking around uh, hours upon hours with my um, blue guide, uh, trying to absorb the layers of history um, that is Rome. And, um, and uh, spending hours uh, musing along the Tiber, etc., and thinking about the river as the Tiber as a, as a river of, of deep, deep history. And then uh, returning home and, and feeling really sad about the fact I wasn't in Rome anymore. <laughs> and realizing that um, I had like left one uh, imperial, uh, uh, capital empire and had inhab- a, a current one and had in, lived in it for a year in um, uh, the capital of, a, of uh, a disappeared empire and had returned. And um, I'm understood now that um, even kind of geographically, architecturally, uh, our capital is modeled on that capital. And then it just became uh, uh, investigating the history of place of Washington became a new way for me to just live at at home. Uh, and so it was a maybe it was like a process of estrange of of imaginative estrangement. Um, and I was thinking about the fact that um, uh, in Washington, the, the, his, the, the river of history is the Potomac. Uh, and, uh, and it runs kind of through Washington the way the Tiber runs through Rome. But Rock Creek is like a forgotten geological history. Um, and not only that, but a lot of history that we forget about happens there. Uh, and it's not just uh, ancient history, but it's um, uh, kind of more immediate history. For example, 
um, Chandra and Levy. Uh, after 9-11, that was no longer a history or story or a mystery that anybody was paying any attention to. It took many years for 9-11 to kind of subside as a, um, an obsession and um, for new evidence to come up and for uh, reporters to start investigating that again. And suddenly she, she, was, she was back. But Rock Creek uh, was the site of, um, of murder, as well as kind of pastoral vision, as well as um, recreational jaunts uh, by presidents, et cetera. So the, 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 whole, um, the, the whole site of the creek became you know, very vexed and rich and, um, and, and contradictory, self-contradictory. But there was always this through line of Rock Creek that nobody really thought about as being a, a historical site so much. That was awesome. Um, I think for me, I came to site, like my second published book was called Sitemap, spelled like the vision, but meaning to pick up both. And for me, um, I was interested in two very disparate but weirdly concordant strands of American thinking. One was transcendentalism. The other one was Robert Smithson and site-specific art. And Smithson has this really interesting short piece um, called like Notes Toward the Non-Site. And he starts talking about the ways in which like these installations that he did, which he called non-sites, um, were basically metaphorical transport. Like, that's kind of what he says. They're not the site themselves, though they're derived from the site. Um, and they're meant in some ways for, to help you travel beyond the site to a new site. And as someone who's really interested in the environment and environmentalism and materiality and bioregions, it took me... It, it took me a long time to understand why Smithson's ideas really bugged me. And it was because it was like making a terrarium or something, you know, and basically saying, like, that's nature, you know, here. And the, which he doesn't. He says it's a non-site. You know, at least he calls it what it is. But I started to think for myself, not... I, I don't have any bad feelings against Smithson or trying to make him out to be a bad person. Um, but for myself, I started to really wonder if my poems were not too far removed from the sites themselves. That if I really didn't know enough about the bioregions that I was writing in, and that I was really in some ways irresponsibly using them as source material without being able to name any of the things that I was looking at, without really knowing the history of the land that I was on, without knowing how it was used, how it is used now, all of those questions, what the species are that I'm you know, standing with. And so for me, it became a real... Um, like sitemap, all those section headings are latitude and longitude, you know, like that was, but those themselves are abstractions, you know, and I don't actually name the places very directly. I mean, I will give hints like Emerson, Susquehanna, the river, we know where that is. But for me and Companion Grasses, I tried to push myself much closer to naming actual places, making, because also places are different given every season, so really trying to embed them in time and place, 
in the poem, trying to author what I say somewhere, like sort of author context as part of the as part of the lyric, and like, can you really do that? I think I fail utterly all the time. I think it's a totally not possible thing, actually. Or I think my desire was so utopian and sort of like, oh, language, I'll just get language and the poem to stretch endlessly, which you can do. I mean, it's a plastic medium. It will go. But I'm not sure that it can go any farther toward the literal material. You know, it's not a grass. It is a poem. You know, like, it's just they're different which I don't want them to be, but, but they are. I think I'm going to have to, I want you guys to have time to read a closing poem, so maybe we could save more questions for milling around afterward. And um, you can just read from the table there if you, okay. if you want. Thank you for the questions. Yeah, those were awesome questions. And I'm just going to read two short poems from, uh, and I'll read the poem that Shailene quoted from the very air. This is from a sonnet sequence, so you won't get the whole sense of things, but you might enjoy it. Um... The field, a song, leaving New England. In the field, we dream, west. How poppies tip toward orange, heliotropic. A word, yellow, edge a furl, fragrant. To say goodbye is specific, as the node where grass branches and stem intends inflorescence. A word we love, where it clusters, fuzz, most modest of blossoms, green timothy sheathed of a sudden in yellow. We lie on our backs, a view framed by grass, and light rises three times. The owl sounds round as a nest. The very air crows thwart their throats upon the very air, faith, reason. But we tire of spirit, sight, striving always for elsewhere, as we are so much among phenomena. God loses luster, where we are local only, inured to detail, starting small with grasses, Flowers, then trees we don't know, nor rocks. Days to recite the names of them all seems heaven enough to us. Because what is language that categories of thought embodied in individual living forms thread through us and things equally? Matter, a sidereal charity, and doesn't it bract? Doesn't it seeple and send seed splitting sheath into soil? Doesn't our flesh, the very fossils, tremble bedrock? Thanks. 
Uh, the last poem I'll read from this book, it's short. Um, thanks, uh, Brian, for also remembering to get my glasses, which I'm blind without, I guess. Uh, this is um, uh, a, it's a kind of translation. I call it a version of uh, a short poem, a well-known poem by the um, Turkish poet uh, Nassim Hikmet. Uh, Hikmet spent a lot of time in prison, uh, in prison for his political views. He was a communist. Uh, and um, uh, this is a poem he wrote in prison, and you can make that out. Uh, it's an untitled poem, but for practical purposes, I call it uh, Hikmet Chankari Prison, 1938. Today is Sunday. Today, for the first time, they let me go out into the sun. And I stood there. I didn't move. Struck for the first time, the very first time ever. How far away from me the sky is. How blue it is. How wide. I sat down in respect, in awe. I sat down on the ground. I leaned my back against the wall. In this moment, there were no waves to fall into. In this moment, there was no liberty and no wife, my wife. There was only the earth beneath me, the sun above me, and me. And how I am grateful, I am happy to have this thing I call my life. I just want to say thank you um, on behalf of the library and all of us. This has been really wonderful. Thank you to our poets. Um, thank you to all of you for coming. And just um, wanted everyone to know that the books, the poets' books are on sale in the back corner. Please buy them. Also, we have um, some survey forms on this table back here. If you can leave us a note about your experience tonight, it's really helpful um, for the library management in terms of getting more funding for programming and things like, important things like that. Um, we also have our email sign-up sheet back here. So thanks a lot, and have a good evening.